Available on digital media, iTunes podcast, smartphone apps, and from the online website. This is Outlook, the talking newspaper for Coventry. Hello and welcome to Outlook. This edition is being recorded on Wednesday, December the 14th, 2022. That's the last year I'm going to say that year, isn't it? Um, now, coming up, it's our Christmas programme, so we've got lots of Christmassy things for you. Plus, um, Margaret's going to the Bird Grove Theatre. I hope you know where that is, but you'll find out later. And we've got all of our usual features, of course. We have got sport, and we have got post bag, and we have got Christmas, in case I didn't mention it already. Mm-hmm. And Hugh, yes, well, Hugh's, no, he isn't Christmassy, is he? I thought not, he was going to be. He's not. He's always Christmassy. But of course, we're going to start with a review of the past week's news with your readers, Nigel and myself. Outlook News. It has its fair share of criticism over the years, but Coventry has finally been recognised for the way it looks. A study of British cities with the most picturesque homes placed Coventry comfortably in the top ten, with an aesthetic home score of 7.04, whatever that may mean. Inspired by a huge increase in searches for the most beautiful UK city of the past three months, researchers used Pinsleret to uncover the British cities with the most picturesque homes. To do this, they analysed the total number of home-related pins and boards to assign a final aesthetic home score for each city. Unsurprisingly, London scored the best, with its Victorian masterpieces, such as the Palace of Westminster, as well as the Georgian Somerset House, and other buildings in the capital, featuring on an amazing 68,531 pins and 653 pincerette boards to date. The city's post-war brutalist architecture can split opinion, that's this city I should add, although it's certainly eye-catching. But it's older sites that populate the TripAdvisor's list of the city's best architectural buildings, including St Mary's Guildhall, Historic Swan Street and Lichgate Cottages. Unsurprisingly, Coventry's Cathedral wins the top spot, with visitors remarking on the contrast of the ruins of the older building, which were destroyed in the Blitz, alongside the awe-inspiring modern cathedral. Parents worried about Strep A are flooding University Hospital Coventry's urgent care departments. UHCW NHS Trust has confirmed to Coventry Live it is seeing more children being brought in for emergency treatment. Much of this is believed to be down to concerns surrounding Strep A, which has sadly led to the death of at least nine children in the UK. The hospital is keen to remind parents and carers to follow the UK Health Security Agency guidance before attending the hospital to help ease pressure on staff. A UHCW spokesman said, We are seeing more children than usual in our urgent and emergency departments. It is important that parents and carers follow the guidance and understand where to seek help depending on the symptoms being exhibited. For the more serious symptoms, an emergency department is the correct place. But for the milder symptoms of scarlet fever, please visit NHS 111 online or call your GP to help to stop the spread of the infection and ensure emergency services are kept for those seriously ill. News from UHCW comes after neighbouring George Elliott Hospital in Eaton said it too was being hit with a rise in demand from worried parents. 
Such was the level of demand on its children's assessment unit. Some families were forced to sit on the floor for hours while they waited for youngsters to be seen by medics. Coventry Council's leader has been cleared of mishandling, misleading colleagues on the subject of a rescue deal for WASP's RFC. Councillor George Duggins made a complaint about his own conduct to the council's monitoring officer, according to documents circulating at a council meeting on Tuesday, December the 6th. The council leader told Coventry Live he referred himself after a BBC CWR interview last month, cast doubts about his truthfulness at a public meeting. Councillor Duggan's complaint was dismissed by the monitoring officer and an independent person after a solicitor found there was no evidence he had lied. Councillor Duggan said he was mortified at a suggestion made in the radio clip that he wasn't telling the truth. Nobody likes to hear those words, he said. I was pretty mortified by what I, by that I still am. My integrity was called into question, which led, as I say, to me effectively referring myself to the monitoring officer. Councillor Duggins claimed he refused to answer questions verbally at a full council meeting on December the 6th because it could be taken out of context in future. Both the interview and Councillor Duggins' self-referral happened in mid-November. They came after a Sunday Times article claimed former Chief Executive Martin Reeves had been in talks with wealth management firm Hottinger about a rescue deal for wasps and the arena's operating company in September. A solicitor was commissioned to look into the matter and found that it involved the Code's principles of acting with integrity and honesty and in a way that secures public confidence in the role of councillor but she considered the complaint could be dismissed without a formal investigation because it didn't disclose any potential breaches of the code. Four fraudsters will spend years behind bars after their cruel actions saw pensioners targeted and scammed out of £200,000. Aris Kumar, 26, Awes Zaman, 21, Maya Haskins, 19, and Adriana Andrade, 19, were jailed for over a decade after their callous involvement in a complex fraud conspiracy targeting vulnerable victims was exposed in court. Detectives identified a total of six victims in the northeast, as well as another in West Yorkshire, all of whom had been contacted by fraudsters purporting to be police officers. They then directed the victims to help officers investigate by supplying vital evidence in the form of withdrawn cash, purchased valuables and personal bank details. Around £200,000 was handed over to the fraudsters, with one victim losing £127,000. All of the incidents were reported to the police and specialist officers soon launched an investigation. In October 2021, warrants were executed at properties in Warwickshire, London and the West Midlands and four suspects soon found themselves in handcuffs. The four defendants were subsequently charged with conspiracy to commit fraud by false representation. In August 2021, Andrade was convicted following a guilty plea. In October this year, Kumar, Zaman and Haskins were convicted by a jury following a trial. Last Friday, the 9th of December, all four appeared before the court and were sentenced to over 10 years for their criminal actions. All four came from Coventry and Rugby. 
Detective Constable Andy Thompson, the officer in charge of the case, said it is vital that victims of fraud continue to challenge cold corners and to report anything suspicious to the police. He said, Firstly, I want to thank the victims in the case for the bravery and for working with officers to ensure justice was served at court. This was a particularly callous crime in which the criminals specifically targeted elderly and vulnerable members of our community to fulfil their own personal greed. The investigation was complex in nature, however, but we ensured that the victims were safeguarded and we identified those responsible who were brought to justice. A petition to reconsider plans to develop up to 350 homes at Browns Lane, which we started talking about last week in the news, was presented to city councillors at Tuesday's council meeting by Councillor Tala Chanav Singh Jandu after gaining almost 900 signatures. The controversial plans set to be considered by the planning committee would see development at the site, which is close to the popular Cowden Wedge beauty spot. Plans also include a two-hectare care home, infrastructure, open space and landscape enhancements. The petition will be considered by the Council's Planning Committee alongside the planning application. Coventry Conservatives say local concerns include the potential impact the development will have on the area and loss of open green space, as well as worries it could pave the way for development on Cowden Wedge in the future. Other concerns include the development resulting in increased traffic, pollution and poor air quality in the area. The site was declassified as green belt land in the 1970s to support the expansion of the Jaguar factory. However, Coventry Conservatives claim by 2009, after the plant had closed, the land was returned to the Greenbelt by a Conservative administration before again being earmarked for development when Labour gained control of the, of the council. Opposition leader, Councillor Gary Ridley, said, I'm not surprised so many people have signed this petition. Everyone I've spoken to is outraged. Sadly, residents have found out the hard way that they just can't trust the failing Labour administration. The blame rests firmly with them, and many people are now worried about the future of the wider area. Councillor David Welsh, Cabinet Member for Housing and Committees, that communities said the council had listened to residents' views during a consultation period, including reducing the original allocation of 475 homes. What has happened more recently is nationally the Conservatives' plan for the number of houses that have more than doubled, which has given cities like Coventry a 35% uplift. He added the council would be fighting the government to keep Camden Wedge as green belt. I understand and respect that there are difficult view, different views on this, but Cowden Wedge was allocated as Green Belt and this site was allocated for development. A group of government officials, ministers, education leaders and employers from 10 developing nations spent time skating on Coventry's outdoor rink in Broadgate to celebrate a successful three-day seminar in the city. More than 50 representatives of developing countries across the globe visited to find out more about the role technical and vocational education and training can play in delivering a circular, sustainable economy. The event was organised by the British Council and attracted delegates from countries including Botswana, Mauritius, Morocco, Mozambique, Nepal, Pakistan, South Africa, Sudan and Tanzania. Over three days, delegates met employers, visited Warwick Trident College and the National Training Academy for Rail and took part in interactive workshops and heard from expert speakers. 
The final afternoon featured a packed cultural program organised by Destination Coventry, with volunteer city hosts showing the delegates around the city. Delegates visited key venues including the Council House, Herbert Art Gallery Museum, Coventry Cathedral, St Mary's Guildhall and Priory Place. On arrival in Broadgate, the group got their skates on to enjoy the rink created by Coventry City Council in partnership with Visit Coventry and the Coventry Business Improvement District. Many of the delegates had never ice skated before and took to the ice with families and local people in the city centre enjoying the winter wonderland. More than 3,000 people have already skated on the Broadgate ice rink since it opened at the end of November. Coventry Council is set to spend £1.8 million on improving areas of the city centre, including parts used for major events and attractions. The cash will be spent improving security in the city centre, as well as improving its appearance. Work will also focus on lighting and refreshing areas around Broadgate, the Upper Precinct, Priory Place and the Cathedral. Buildings and facades will be upgraded around Broadgate, the Precinct, Market Way and Barracks Way uh, Tunnel, while damaged water features in Priory Place will be addressed. Security measures will also be introduced in areas such as around the Cathedral, the University and the Wave to create safe event spaces. The work will be discussed at a Cabinet meeting on December the 13th and at full council on January the 17th and is expected to be completed by March, next, uh, March 2024. Councillor Jim O'Boyle, Cabinet Member for Jobs, Regeneration and Climate Change said the work so far has totally transformed our city centre has been really well received by residents and visitors. These improvements will not only add to the look and feel of the city, but will also help people to feel more secure. Asylum hotels in Coventry and other cities across the country must be closed down. This is the view of a Coventry councillor who is set to write to the Home Office telling them it is vital to stop using hotels in that way, as creating a fairer system to decide how many refugees and migrant cities should take on. A number of hotels in Coventry have been used to home asylum seekers in recent years and Councillor David Welsh says that while Coventry is and always will be a city of sanctuary, the inappropriate use of hotels has to stop. Coventry councillors will consider a report concerning the arrival and welcome of people from asylum-seeking refugee and migrant communities into the city. The report calls on the government to create a fairer system for asylum dispersal and it states that the current way the process happens is broken. Councillor Welsh, Cabinet Member for Housing and Communities said, The government's current asylum dispersal system is not working. We want to make them absolutely aware of this and that's why we plan to write to the Home Office. Coventry and the City Council has always played its part in this work and has more than taken its fair share of new arrivals. We will always welcome people to the city, but as it outlines in this report, the system is placing a greater burden on cities like Coventry. There have been multiple, multiple demands placed on the local authority in recent years, in particular inappropriate use of hotels. This has to stop. He added, the main problem is that people remain for a lot longer in contingency asylum hotels than is ideal, placing a greater burden on local health and other services. A regional model put forward by the West Midlands Strategic Migration Partnership to disperse people who are asylum seekers to more local authority areas and more fairly is something we support. 
To complete the move to a fairer distribution, however, it is vital that asylum hotels are closed down and proper arrangements are made for the accommodation of the asylum seekers. Shopping trolleys, food packaging and plastic bags were among the rubbish dumped in the Coventry Canal. Local residents took it upon themselves to clear the waste in the latest clean-up operation. With nets and grubbers, volunteers took up the task to clean up floating rubbish under Bridge 8 of the canal. Members of the local litter-picking group Big Cleanup posted photographs of the rubbish on Facebook. The canal was littered with plastic bags, old wooden planks, cardboard boxes and plastic bottles. The volunteers also recovered three Tesco trolleys from the canal, they said. They also managed to free fish stuck in the metal bars of the trolleys before setting them free into the water. One of the members, Jill Roberts, wrote on Facebook, following Sandra Cousins' visit to Bridge 8, which showed a jam of debris in the water, Carl Griffiths, Deb and I picked a paid a quick visit to extract the litter, branches and roots using our nets, grubbers and other reach poles. We also extracted three trolleys from the water, one of which had a live fish stuck at its bars. A crowbar manoeuvre by the CMRT guys, who fortunately arrived to empty bins, soon freed it and it swam off. A fourth trolley by the side of the billboards was also taken by the guys. Maybe if Tesco lost the trolleys rather than them being returned, they might invest in trolley blockers. Facebook used as uh, praise of volunteers for the clean-up. One user wrote, Great job done by the three of you. Happy fish, now free. Jill has lashed out at the rubbish dumping along the canal, saying it is harming the wildlife and causing an eyesore to green spaces in the city. He added, the litter in the street is terrible. Litter in our green spaces and waterways is simply criminal. Coventry City Council is set to bring in new measures to reduce the number of empty houses in the city and free up space for families looking to buy homes. Councillors will this month discuss adopting a new policy that allows the authority to charge 100% premium on council tracks for owners of homes that have been empty and unfurnished for 12 months. The current charge only applies to houses that have been empty for two years or more. Councillors will hear that empty homes charge currently brings in £500,000 a year in council tax. Reducing the empty period to one year would bring roughly 577 more properties into the scheme and generate another £900,000. They are considering introducing this charge from April 2024, giving the owners one year's notice of the new rules. Another move could see owners of second homes facing the same 100% council tax premium for furnished empty properties, including rental properties. This would see around £3.6 million generated in extra council tax. However, councillors are considering delaying taking this step until further reviews can be carried out to see what effect it would have on the housing market. It could be introduced in 2025. The city currently has 307 homes that have been empty for two years or more that come under the 100% charge. Another 67 homes have been empty for over five years and have a 200% premium charge. With a further 41 homes empty for more than 10 years and subject to a premium charge of 300%. Furnished empty properties, which include second homes that owners live in periodically, are currently exempt from long-term empty premiums. But the government's new levelling up and regeneration bill allows councils to introduce the higher charges. 
This would encourage landlords to keep homes occupied or sell them on, or else face increased payments. The city currently has around 2,200 properties classed as second homes. The new plans will go before the full council in January next year. Outlook News. Thank you to Nigel for helping me read the news. I was a bit croaky, sorry about saying that one. Got, yeah, remains yet another cold, but it's more, more or less gone. Hope you're keeping well in this I cold am. weather, and I hope all the listeners are too. Well, it's not succumbing to. Oh, it is. I don't mind yeah. it. Yes, it's yeah. just asking for two colds in a row here, and I don't usually get cold, so it's a bit. I think it's because we've been away from everybody for the past two winters oh, and avoiding the germs, and everybody, everybody seems to have a cold. Yeah. Talking of cold, it's dark as well, isn't it? Yes, but um, it get brighter. I know. Only another. Five days, six days to go. Yeah, 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 seven seven days to go. Then if we're going to be picky, a week. (laughs) Um, So at the moment, sunrise is eight oh nine and sunset is three fifty four. And when it's dark and gloomy, it doesn't really seem to get light. But yes, it's we're getting there slowly. Um, One of the things that's sort of vaguely Christmassy, I spotted. um, There's going to be no change to household and recycling bin collections over the Christmas and New Year. The council crews will be working between Tuesday and Friday during Christmas week, the twenty seventh to the thirtieth, and in the new year the bins will be collected as usual from the 3rd to the 6th garden waste have already stopped and they return on January the 17th but I can't imagine you've got much garden waste no, at the moment um, no. but if you really have loads of rubbish the London Road tip will remain open for people to use um, the only other thing a rather nice a message from Bob signed to all our listeners wishing them a very happy Christmas and New Year so happy Christmas to you Bob thank, thank you Bob yes and the same for you very much yes. so. so happy Christmas to all our listeners I think yes, and indeed. that's about it for the announcements at all. I think that's all we've got for this we week, folks. We don't get uh, street works now, do we? we no, to, we no. Never mind. Don't fall into any holes, anyway. <laughs> don't fall at all, don't especially at all, being icy. Right. You take care as you're out and about. Now, I'm sure there's lots of Christmassy things going on at the Resource Centre, and here's Hugh to tell us all about them. Well, we've had all the Christmassy things. Oh! No, we, no um, not, 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 not between now and then. Oh, uh, but, uh, you know, we're just marvelling, it has to be said today. Uh, Pete Smith, who many of you will know, uh, we think he's got nine Christmas dinners oh, uh, no. before Christmas. That's so, not that many uh, days left, are uh, Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he's managing to pack them in. So, well done, Pete. <laughs> That's what I say. We're very impressed. Uh, and uh, uh, what I will remind you about is the uh, uh, that we're closed uh, over the Christmas period. Now, I did say that we would be open on the Friday the 23rd, mm-hmm. but as it happens, there are not going to be any groups running at all that day, so uh, we're going to be closed on Friday the 23rd as well. Uh, um, it saves on the heating and yep. it means that I can do some Christmas shopping probably because <laughs> I'm a late You mean bunny. you haven't finished yet? Uh, you, have you started? You, have I started? No. Oh dear. <laughs> yes. Santa uh, needs some help. Yes, yes. So uh, all the time I can get. Anyway, so uh, and then we will be closed in, over the entirety of the Christmas period uh, and, and reopening on Tuesday the 2nd of uh, January because the bank holiday is on the Monday. So, uh, so that's that. Right, now I've got a few things though. I've had um, uh, um, 
uh, a notice through from the visual and hearing impairment team that this is about a, uh, a new group that's starting up um, and it's free football sessions for uh, blind and partially sighted people uh, and uh, it's an organisation called Equalise uh, free friendly football they say you don't want to be saying that after your Christmas dinner perhaps so they're looking for players um, sessions uh, would start early in 2023 and they'll be held at goals which which is uh, 12 Bell Green Road. Uh, so that's uh, I think that's up by um, uh, AT... Uh, what, what's it called? Mm. Um, the, anyway, there's a yeah. sports centre up there oh, okay. uh, by the roundabout. Um, so if you're interested, uh, you can uh, send an email to fcequalise, that's f-c-e-q-u-a-l-i-s-e at gmail.com uh, and um, uh, but if you can't remember that or you struggle with email please uh, just uh, contact us and um, we will you know put you in the right direction mm-hmm. so that sounds like it might be a lot of fun yeah, if you feel if sort you're, of if you're uh, interested in football, if yeah. interested in football or yeah. just want to do do something a bit different a bit sporty yes uh, lose the weight you put on over christmas maybe yes pete you're signing up for football mate <laughs> um and uh so uh, so that's that now uh, we've also had through now you know r and i b you know bless their socks sometimes they're not you know, well, complete, completely relevant yeah. to, you know, everybody's everyday life, you know. But what they have done, actually, is produced um, a, a, a number of uh, fact sheets um, about uh, the cost of living crisis. So if you're struggling, you know, because, you know, many of you, your incomes are pretty fixed, you know, and, uh, and the prices and what have you are going up for everything. Mm-hmm. We're all feeling the squeeze. Uh, so uh, I'll just read you a little bit of what they've, uh, what they've, what they've said. So, um, so if you have sight loss or provide care for someone who does, there are a number of welfare benefits you may be entitled to. Some of these benefits can help provide you with an income if you're not able to work, while others can help towards the extra costs that often make life more expensive if you have a disability. Uh, uh, so at the RNIB, we've produced uh, various fact sheets to help you learn more about the benefits that you're most likely to be entitled to if your life is affected by sight loss. For help with any of the benefits and support uh, that they detail in their fact sheets, you can contact the Sight Loss Advice Service uh, on 0303-123-9999, and that's the, the standard RNIB number. Uh, or you can email um, advice service at rnib.org.uk, and they can advise you on all the potential uh, benefit entitlement and support you through the claims process, including providing you with fact sheets and toolkits on the various benefits available. The research from the Department of Work and Pensions confirms that some 63% of eligible people over the overstate pension age and 52% of working age people do not claim all their means-tested benefit entitlement. Mm-hmm. So the result of this is that some £15 billion is left unclaimed in means-tested benefits every year. Yeah. Um, we also know that they also know that many uh, blind and partially sighted people could meet the threshold for health or disability-related payments uh, which are not means-tested, such as personal independence payment, attendance allowance or disability 
disability allow, uh, living allowance for children. So given the impact of the current cost of living crisis, RNRB wants to make sure that blind and partially sighted people claim what they're entitled to, along with accessing all other support that is available. It's definitely worth um, mm-hmm. checking oh, yeah. it out. If you're entitled, then you should have it. Yeah, so they can do um, a benefit calculation for you, and you can do that yourself um, uh, on their website, and uh, I'll give you this uh, website address if you're able to use it, rnib.entitledto.co.uk forward slash home forward slash start. Now, that's a bit of a mouthful. Um, if you're interested in doing this, then uh, we can um, get people here to help you and have a look at all of that. So some of the things they're suggesting is consider moving to universal credit by completing a better off calculation. So um, the uh, the benefit calculation tool will help you with that. Um, universal credit, I understand, is available only to people of working age. Um, and there's uh, uh, tax credits as well. Um, this, uh, you, they'll help you with um, re- renegotiating the rate of debt payments that are taken from your benefits. Um, you check check your tax code if you're a taxpayer because sometimes um, you know sometimes your tax code get, gets a bit out of date if you've not been paying attention to it. Um, there's local support, so uh, for example, there's a household support fund um, that local authorities administer, um, and you know other things too, such as the discretionary assistance uh, fund. Well, that's really for people in Wales, but there's similar um, similar sorts of things. So if you've got you know any sort of immediate things, I don't know mm. your boiler breaks down or something, and they can help you on that talking of boilers you need to check that your energy supplier is part of the warm home discount scheme Uh, there's a uh, 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 a a discount that you can get to help uh, pay your uh, energy bills Um, there's a discretionary housing payment so if you're being penalized by the benefit cap bedroom tax or the local housing allowance rate there's lots and lots of things out there other help for households available uh, which is uh, a government uh, government campaign called yeah called help for households um, uh, so some of those things will be sort of factored into your energy bills already mm-hmm. you know we'll be getting mm-hmm. you know the 400 pounds this winter you know that's applied to your bills you know if but that's if you're paying sort of direct debit but if you're you know getting through through the uh, a card or you know a key or whatever like that you know you need to sort of keep on top of that uh, as well it's hard when you can't see very well um, you, if you're contributing towards a social care at home that's funded through your local authority, you can also uh, check uh, whether you're being charged the correct amount because mm. a surprising number of people aren't being charged around the correct, correct amount. So they can they can help you with that as well. Uh, here, the broadband social tariff. That's a new service. It's run by the DWP, uh, which um, allows internet service providers to verify, with permission from their customers, whether they are in receipt of a relevant benefit and therefore eligible for extra financial support. So, if you have broadband at home, you know you might well get um, a bit of money off doing that. So, yeah, I mean, so there's a lot of information there. Now, um, uh, you can call the RNRB helpline. I'll give you the number again, 0303-123-9999. In fact, if you have an Alexa or something like that, you can say, Alexa, call RNIB helpline, uh, and uh, it should go through as well. I think probably you have to be, you know, make sure you, it's connected to a phone system of some kind anyway, that, you know, that you, you'll know that if your Alexa can do that sort of thing. Uh, but... Um, 
also, you know, absolutely uh, come and talk to us about it here at the Resource Centre, um, and we will, you know, we will sort of dig out the information for you mm. and uh, see what we can do to help. I mean, it's a hard time for everybody, mm. you know. It's ever so complicated with that many different benefits and things you can yeah. have that you've gone through there that people don't know exist. Exactly. Like, even if you think everything is okay, it's worth checking if because you just might find something you that you're not exactly. getting that you're entitled exactly. to. Exactly. You know, and I mean, if you're entitled, then you have it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they're, they're called entitlements for a, for a yeah. reason. Yeah. You know, we're yeah. all part of this community. Yeah. We all, you know, and we all pay for it through our taxes. And, yeah. you know, and, you know, society decides that we, you know, we spend these taxes on, you know, partly on, on, on wow. making sure that people need the support get it you know yeah. so you know there's it, no it's no not shame. charity it's it, not charity. entitlement so no, you know, exactly particularly at the moment with the, like, the world the way it is yes. if you're entitled to it have it absolutely just to make life you know because yeah yeah because there's no point sitting at home getting cold and you know and not eating properly no, no i think we're getting cold uh, sitting here but never mind <laughs> though pete smith might be able to help you with the uh, with the eating properly <laughs> get, get some doggy bags <laughs> yeah exactly yes exactly the one oh. man food bank oh well thank you to you for that <laughs> and thank, thank you for the resource centre for putting up with us here on the talking newspaper oh well no it's, uh, it's always good it's always good and uh well and thank you for the kind words of uh uh, support for me, uh, given my cold, you know, at the moment, which is ongoing. Oh, no, Do you remember the tunes adverts? You yeah. know, oh, I'll return to Dottingham, please. You know, <laughs> that's how I'm feeling at no, the I've moment. I've still got the remains of it. I yeah. think everybody's got one, so yeah, you're yeah, not alone. There we are. Okay, that's Thank you. you. Now, Sarah's not here with us this week, but she has recorded her sport, so here's Sarah. Outlook Sport. Well, hello there, listeners. It's Sarah with Sport. Now, I'm recording on Sunday afternoon, and Saturday was not a good day for sport. Firstly, I must start off with an apology. I did say that the football wouldn't be back until Boxing Day. Well, it isn't, but that's only the Premiership. And, of course, I got my information from Match of the Day, which only covers the Premiership. But the authorities had obviously worked out that any players involved in the World Cup from the Championship level, which is the level we play at, Coventry City, are likely to have returned home by now whereas the Premiership could be there till the very end. And actually, such was the case for Reading, our opponents this weekend, who had players from Ghana, Senegal and Canada, all of whom got knocked out quite early. Anyway, it didn't make any difference to Coventry. We went to Reading and we lost 1-0, very much against the run of play, But anyway, that's the rule of the game. The ball goes in the net once, goal down. Now, also losing, I'm afraid, were Coventry Rugby Club, who went away to Hartbury and lost 46-35. Hmm, and you were leading at half-time, Cov. Now, Leamington's match in Yorkshire was postponed due to a frozen pitch. But, meanwhile, our one saving grace, Nuneaton Borough, beat Leighton 2-1 at Sunny Nunny. And it must have been sunny because there was no frozen pitch there. Although Coventry United lost three goals to five. 
The only good side of that was that they were playing one of our other local teams, Rugby Town. Oh yeah, and England lost 1-2 to France. And I have to say, France thoroughly deserved it, I believe. Their two goals were stupendous and they played good football. As we all know now, it's been kind of put down to a penalty miss by Harry Kane. But the players just went at the races, which is true, because they were on a football pitch. But never mind. But you may remember a few weeks ago, I said that I had three teams in the World Cup. England, obviously. Wales because they're almost in England. Shh, don't tell the Welsh. And Croatia. Oh, yes, I did. I supported Croatia since 2006. I have the shirt, I have the scarf, I have the hat, I have the everything you can get in their wonderful red and white checkerboard, which their kit is. And, of course, we are in the semi-finals. We take on Argentina which is a bit of a mismatch because poor little Croatia has a population of 4.1 million, whereas Argentina has a population of smidgen under 45 million. Still, it's quality, not quantity. And if anyone wants to know where Croatia is, if you imagine that you're looking at a map of Italy, to the right-hand side facing you of Italy, Croatia is a long, thin country that runs the whole way opposite. Now, talking of Croatia, as I was, um, a bonus point for anybody who can tell me what the Croatian for Croatia is. In other words, what do they call their own country? And I'll try to remember to tell you at the end of the match. At the end, sorry folks, at the end of the recording, the end of the match. You can tell I've been watching too much football. Now, also talking about the World Cup and Mr Kane missing his penalty. I happened to look today in preparation for the second part at the Sports Personality of the Year bookies favourites. And guess who's in at number two? Harry Kane. With Saka at four and Rashford at five. Hmm, I wonder how quickly those will change. Anyway, I'm going to start with my choice. He won't win. He probably won't even be shortlisted. But he is my choice. Now, listeners will not be surprised to know that he's the male gymnast, Joe Fraser. Why? Well, Joe, first of all, is a very good gymnast and secondly, a fantastic personality. So he really sums up to me what the award should be about. He's the overall, all-round European and Commonwealth gold medalist, as well as winning multitudinous gold medals on the individual apparatus. High bar and parallel bar are his particular specialities. And you may recall 
that whilst competing in the Commonwealth Games, he'd had a burst appendix five weeks previously and surgery obviously to remove it and three weeks before the Commonwealth started he broke his foot. In fact his foot was so bad that he was basically having to do all his landings from the apparatus one leg although pretending to put the other leg down obviously to score and also as soon as he come off he was having to pet to wear a support boot hmm and then his team spirit and his cheering on of his team oh yes he is the england team captain absolutely second to none you may remember the heroic comeback they made to take bronze in the World Championships and qualify for 2024 Olympics. Well, in the individual, poor Joe had a real nightmare. If he could fall off it, he'd fall off it, and that would include the floor if it was possible. But there he was, encouraging members of his team in their apparatus, and making sure he finished all of his routines to the very end, even when he was falling off two or three times, because he knew in front of a British audience that they would want to see him. Joe Fraser, you are a real sports personality and my choice for 2022. But moving on... Who do I think will win sports personality? Well, I think it's going to be Ben Stokes. He is the captain of the England men's cricket club, cricket team, and took over from Joe Roots in April when England were undergoing a pretty disastrous run. Well, he turned that around promptly and they beat New Zealand and then they went and beat South Africa and he was named Man of the Series for the, that, those matches against South Africa. Now currently, you may be aware, England are playing Pakistan in Pakistan and Stokesy was partly responsible for them pulling off a real tight nail-biting finish to win the first test and of course although he abandoned the one-day league saying that he needed to sort of rest because there's so much goes on now in the cricket team cricket world he did lead England to their victory in the two t20 world cup and him himself scored 52 runs to make sure they did and hit the final run. So he's who I think will. Although having looked at the bookies odds today, I was very surprised to see that the bookies favourite is Beth Mead, who you're all saying. She was the England captain who led their successful football team to win the Euro Championship in July of this, of this year. Professionally, she plays as a forward at Arsenal. 
She won the Golden Boot in the Euros and Player of the Year. So she'd be a pretty good winner. But the reason I don't want her to win is because I want the team to win Team of the Year. I mean, the list the women gave to the country winning that European Championship. You know, we were able to sing Football's Come Home, although it's not so easy after you spent so long singing it is coming when it never is. And although there's no reason why an individual can't win the one and then a team win the next, I don't like it when one competition really dogs and dominates all of the awards. Of course, I also want Serena Wiegmann to win the coach or manager of the year. Serena was the manager of the almighty women's European football champions. She previously managed her home side, the Netherlands, to victory in the same competition in 2017 before presumably being tempted over to lead us. And before she took over, we weren't a bad side, but we weren't making it into the finals and the semi-finals. But she certainly turned that round, and she does it so nicely and so politely. Note, please, to male managers in the Premiership. And finally, while I'm talking about sports personality... Oh, by the way, if you want to catch it, it's on Wednesday the 21st of December, BBC One, starting at 6.45. Please, please, please find an award for Roger, by whom I mean Roger Federer, of course. Come on, guys, you usually find a reason and make up some award. If you can't give him the World Player of the Year, give him outstanding contribution to world sport. Just give him something. Oh, and my finally, my answer to my question, what is Croatia in Croatian? I'll spell this. H. R-V-A-T-S-K-A So phonetically that is Horovatska Hmm, nothing like Croatia really, is it? Never mind, may I take this opportunity to wish everybody a very happy Christmas and I will speak to you next year. Bye! Thank you, Sarah, for that. Always interesting, even if you're not that enthusiastic about sport. So now it's on to your part of the programme, and it's Dave with your Christmas postbag. This is Postbag. Join in the discussion. 
Hello there and welcome to a festive edition of Postbag and a very happy Christmas to you. We begin with a message from the patron of the Resource Centre, Coventry's Lady Godiva Prupuretta, whom I met at the Winter Warmer. Happy Christmas everyone, it's Pru here, Prupuretta Lady Godiva. I'm with Sheila and I'm so pleased to see her in her beautiful crocheted blanket. It's got lovely colours of red and blue and orange and green, but it's just great to see her and David today. So I'd just like to wish you all a really happy Christmas and a very healthy New Year for 2023. Bless you all. God bless, Prue. And we start off your postbag with a special message mentioning... CBS or Community Broadcasting Services for the last time maybe because it's now Coventry Talking Newspaper. From John and Julia to our friends at CBS. Our friend David says CBS was planning a Christmas edition and persuaded us to contribute by sending a postal order. Well that's not true because our friend David is not so crude even if we are. We enjoy CBS, especially David and Sarah, because we're very sporty and go jogging every morning about 4.30. Do you believe us? What will this year bring us all? I expect we'll all win the lottery and move to Florida. Maybe, but perhaps not Florida, because that nice Mr. Trump lives there and there's not enough room for the three of us. We have it on good authority that the sun will shine most days from mid-January and next year winter will last only two weeks around Christmas. The government will give a huge grant to the Resource Centre and good old Mark Galvin will be made Prime Minister for life so we won't have to have any more general elections all year. All that is true as true as we are riding on pink donkeys. I don't think we should make any more predictions, as we're not very good at them. By the way, John says he remembers Peggy, because she would always twang his braces as a way of remembering who he was. Also, his cats, Casper and Tabitha, will always remember her, because she would always bring them a packet of cat treats every Monday. We hope everybody has a great Christmas and New Year. John doesn't ever send anybody any Christmas cards because he's so mean. He does, though, always give a donation to the Resource Centre, although he thinks that excuses his meanness. Happy Christmas to everybody from John and his friend Julia. Thank you very much, John and Julia, and for your tremendous support for Postbag during the year. And just recently, Graham and I made a return visit to the Sydney Centre at Leamington Spa to take part in their sing-along. Graham was giving me a break as Sheila is back in hospital. Hopefully she seems to be on the men, so hopefully she'll be out soon. Uh, one of the entertainers was Haley, formerly of Vista, who has recently started her own group, the Star Singer. So here's the lovely voice of Haley. Bells. 
from your friends who listen with you to Outlook starting with Amy who is spending Christmas in Florida with her brother I hope you will phone in a, a message to us please Amy you could message me it's cheaper anyway hope you have a lovely Christmas here's Amy followed by Tina Mary and Gail Taylor well I'd just like to wish everybody a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. I won't see anybody for a while because I'm, I'm going to Florida very soon, but I'll be listening to Outlook while I'm on my holiday. Wish everybody a Happy Christmas. Happy New Year. I hope everything goes well for next year. Hello there. I wish you all a very happy Christmas. I was brought up in the deaf world, but of course I am now partially blind and had a stroke. And I've met some lovely people, so have a wonderful time. Don't eat too much turkey or too much Christmas pudding, but God bless you all. Bye. I would like to wish you all the outlook and all the listeners a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year and I hope I can continue to contribute to Outlook and I think it is a very good magazine. In Gail's autobiography, My World, there is a lovely smiling photo of Gail opening a present song and it's on the front page of the people. It was in 1960 entitled Read This to the Family. A little blind girl opens her Christmas presents. Her groping hands tell her all she wants to know. Her eyes are closed, but her face lights up with joy. The article goes on to ask people to contribute to the £30,000 appeal started by Gilbert Harding. Remember him? Who died four years earlier. And also to contribute as a tribute to Gail's courage. In the resource centre recently, having a cup of tea, was Andy and Gemma, whom I interviewed once. And they give you this Christmas greeting. Gemma. Andy. Happy Christmas, everybody. Yeah, Merry Christmas to all the guys at the resource centre and the volunteers. And now we hear from Karen Bucknell again, who survived cancer operations and a brain tumour to become a broadcaster, a model and a modern inspirational beauty pageant queen, with titles including Miss Voluptuous and Miss Magical Smile, as revealed in my recent interviews. She is 
introduced by the the Mayfield Bellringers, who entertained at the Monday Club one Christmas. Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year, and make it the best one ever. And now a lovely message from John's friend Julia, this time with Jen, whom I met at the Winter Warmer. This is my Christmas message. Happy Christmas to everyone in the world and my blessings to Postbag, the very lovely David and Sheila, MBE, and all my friends. May your days be filled with joy and happiness. I expect you want to know how to make a wreath. Well, you're lucky because I've just made one. You need some holly. About one small tree will, will do nicely. But you can use other things too, flowers, leaves or small fruit. Not large ones like marrows or melons. It's better to stick with smaller fruit like bananas. Then you need a round frame to stick it all on. My friend John said he used an old lavatory seat, but I prefer to use coat hangers. I use different coloured ribbons and tinsel and stuff, but you can use anything that's a bit pretty. In the olden days, when my friend John was a whippersnapper, they used to wear them as crowns, but now they are mainly hung on the front door next to the intercom. I do hope you all have a happy Christmas. Lots of love from Julia and her friend Jen. Thank you so much, Julia and Jen. That was really lovely and very interesting and helpful. And now we hear from another lovely listener who's been phoning me up on my home phone on 024-76-598484. And that's Doreen Hilton. Good morning, everybody. Dave and Sheila and all the staff from the Resource Centre and all our lovely volunteers. You do a wonderful job. Um, very much appreciated by Doreen here. I'm sure you would be appreciated by um, everybody else, even our listeners. Um, happy Christmas all, and also all in the Monday Club as well. And we hope that we have a good one. But remember, keep warm and keep well. Keep up your good spirit. That's what Doreen said. Okay, so God bless you all. Hope to see you in the new year. Well, thank you, and that's just about all from your um, messages this week, unless you uh, send some in. <laughs> okay, and uh, Christine sticks them in post bag. But I'd like to end up this week's post bag, first of all, by thanking you for your uh, post bag contributions during the day. And also by wishing you a very happy Christmas and a happy and healthy and peaceful New Year. Thank you and bye for now. This is Outlook. You can contact Postbag. Our website is www.talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Our email address is postbag at talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Join in the discussion on Postbag. Thanks, Dave, for the last postbag of the year. Now, some of you may know George Elliott House in Fosil, but its more accurate name is Bird Grove. And this is Margaret's next port of call on her tour of Coventry Landmark Buildings. Bird Grove 
was a semi-detached Georgian house in Foles Hill. Only half of it remains. It was the residence of Mary Ann Evans, better known as the novelist George Eliot, who lived here for eight years from March 1841 with her father, Robert Evans. Mary Ann started her literary career at Bird Grove. The alcove where she sat writing still exists with its small window that once overlooked Coventry spires. Here she sat by a figure of Christ for two years, translating Strauss's Life of Jesus. Her neighbours, Abijah and Elizabeth Pierce, introduced her to Elizabeth's brother, Charles Bray, and his wife, Caroline, at Rose Hill on Radford Road. It was this meeting with the Brays and their circle of intellectual friends that led to the life-changing creation of George Eliot as we know her today. Bray, a social reformer, bought the Coventry Herald as his political mouthpiece and while at Bird Grove, Mary Ann wrote her first original works for it, one written in 1847 called Vice and Sausages, was a satire on John Vice, Coventry's chief constable, and a scandal involving Coventry butchers. Robert Evans died here in 1849. Marianne went to the continent with the Brays and afterwards moved to London. In December 1860, the house was described as comprising of a drawing room, 30 foot by 20 foot with bay windows, a dining room, 34 foot by 16 foot, best and servant's kitchen, butler's pantry with excellent cellarage, five bed chambers with bathroom, water closet and servant's chamber. The outbuildings compromise a carriage house, harness room, stable, shed and pigsties and adjoining the house are a conservatory and vinery. Joseph Cash Jr. then lived here until his death in 1880. He was the nephew of John Cash, one of the founders of J&J Cash, the famous silk weavers. Joseph's son Joseph, another, took over the building after his death, although set in intact in extensive grounds over time, the Cashes purchased land to protect their view as the city encroached. This Joseph Cash, silk manufacturer, JP and formerly of J&J Cash Limited, went bankrupt in 1900 after investing in numerous unprofitable ventures. In 1942, the building was acquired by the council and the following year turned into a boys' hostel. It has since been many things, including an evangelical school. So now we're getting into Christmassy things. I hope you're ready for all this. We're going to have a piece that I recorded a little while ago, and it's all about the origins of the Christmas pudding. I found this on the English, Web English Heritage website. What would Christmas dinner be without a Christmas pudding? Following the marriage of Queen Victoria and Prince Albert, the royal family celebrated Christmas with gusto and the rest of the nation followed their example. 
Charles Dickens has certainly helped plant Christmas in our minds as a very Victorian custom. And in A Christmas Carol, Charles Dickens wrote, In half a minute, Mrs Cratchit entered, finished but smiling proudly with the pudding, like a speckled cannonball, so hard and firm, blazing in half a half quartern of ignited brandy, and bedecked with Christmas holly stuck in the top. Oh, what a wonderful pudding! However, the Christmas pudding itself has much earlier origins. The pudding we know today began life as a pottage. That was a kind of broth, including raisins and other dried fruit, spices and wine. It was thickened with breadcrumbs or ground almonds. Not dissimilar to the mince pies of yesteryear, it often included meat or at least meat stock. The original figgy pudding was almost unrecognisable from modern Christmas pudding. For example, this medieval recipe, which was published in 1392, says, Take almonds blanched, grind ham, and draw them up with water and wine. Quarter figure whole raisins cut into powdered ginger and honey clarified. Seat it well and salt it and serve forth. This plum pottage would be served at the start of the meal, rather than at the end, as we do today. It was not until the end of the 17th century that the pottage took on a more solid appearance. It was served like a porridge or cooked inside a skin like a sausage. Even then it was more likely to have been sliced and cooked under a roasting joint and served alongside the main meat or as a starter, certainly not as a dessert. During the 18th century, plum porridge would become associated with Christmas. It would be the Victorians who raised its prominence at the festive table. Conservative though they were, the Victorians believed that Christmas should be celebrated, or that excessive drinking and frolicking were frowned upon. It was they who established the tradition of making the Christmas pudding on Stir Up Sunday, the fifth Sunday before Christmas. Inspiration was taken from the collet in the Book of Common Prayer. Stir up, we beseech thee, O Lord, the wills of thy faithful people, that they, plenteously bringing forth the fruit of good works, may be thee plenteously rewarded. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Stir up Sunday was a family affair. Each family member was supposed to stir the mixture from east to west to honour the journey of the Magi. This ritual was also thought to bring the family luck in the coming year. Originally, the puddings would have been shaped into a sphere and boiled in a cloth. This practice eventually gave way to steaming the dessert in a pudding basin or elaborate mould, particularly in wealthier households. The traditional accompaniment to the Christmas pudding was a sweet custard or hard sauce, nowadays known as brandy butter. It was customary to hide a number of small trinkets in the mixture, a bit like the Twelfth Night Cake. These charms often included a silver coin, which signified wealth, and a ring to represent a future marriage. Woe betide the guests who stumbled across a thimble in their serving. This meant certain spinsterhood for the recipient. Whilst there may, even today, be an expectation for a pudding to appear at a Christmas feast, it seldom gets eaten up on the day. In Lancashire, to use up Christmas pudding, they make a type of Eccles cake with the crumbs, and in Devon they turn the leftovers into a type of a custody pudding. Some people prefer it diced and fried, just like the original 
plum porridge. So how do you use up your Christmas pudding? Miss Simich, I'm a great lover of Christmas pudding. I can't wait to have mine. So, but of course, Christmas wouldn't be complete without those special street decorations. And the switching on of the Camden lights was watched by Dave and Graham. And here's Dave's report. Hello there, it's a big welcome to the switching on of Cowden Christmas lights. I'm with Graham here. Hello there. <laughs> There's a big crowd building up, isn't there? Yeah, big crowd. Yeah, it helps it with now got the cyclone uh, in place so people stand on the cyclone and wear out getting too far into the road. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, quite safe. And it's all in aid of Zoe's place. A hospice built on part of the uh, site of Exel Grange School. Well, I can see in the little window of the house there's a snowman, and every so often a big gust of snow blows him over. Well, in front of us, at the top of Barkerbutt's Hill, there are two houses joined together, and they're about to be covered in beautiful lights. That must switch on. Facing us, the house on the right is owned by Paul and Richard who are responsible for all this yearly light-up for a children's hospice. Wonderful. So what can you see, Graham? A, be a bear. Oh, there's a bear. Okay, uh, a nice yellow bear mingling with the crowd. Feed the world. Let them know it's Christmas time. Hello everyone. Um, just want to say thank you so much from Zoe's Place Baby Hospice for supporting us. Um, Zoe's Place provides respite, palliative and end-of-life care to babies and infants dying from birth till the age of six. Let's get on with the show we Can we have a countdown from ten for the lights? Are you ready? Santa Claus switched the lights on and he's come to meet the crowd. This lovely big bushy beard. Well the lights covering two houses joined together, they're absolutely beautiful. Uh, they've got reindeer on the uh, right hand house balcony uh, and there's a uh, little train on the left hand side and there's uh, snowmen and lights and Father Christmas in the garden. So what can you see, Grant? I see a uh, reindeer with lights on it, angel, uh, angels on the, on the uh, roof. There's a city scene in front of the house. And that's very nice, isn't it? 
right underneath the window. Fantastic. And there's a lovely tree covered with beautiful fairy lights and uh, a snow globe as well, a big one with Santa Claus and a snowman in it. And there's a big, huge snowman in the garden as well. So what are we queuing up for, Greg? <laughs> I don't know. There are some, uh, I think it's some mull wine on sale, I think. Tea and coffee. Hello. <laughs> I'm speaking to a lady here. What's your name? Uh, Claire. Okay, so what do you think of the lights? Oh, they're beautiful. Lovely. We come, out, we come every year. Oh, yes. We right. do. Good. Bring the children and the grandchildren. Okay, what sort of things are the favourites among the lights? Uh, they like to see the Santa. Yeah. Um, and the music. <laughs> yeah, the music, yeah. Yeah, to dance. <laughs> the atmosphere is yeah. great, isn't it? Yeah, really is nice. Yeah, it's Thank you very nice. much. Thank you. Okay, what's your name? I'm Paul, Paul Berry's Grant. You're Paul. Well, congratulations on, on you, you and Richard for these wonderful displays. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. How much have you raised so far from, uh, for the, uh, the children's hospice at um, Joey's place? So before today, um, it's about twenty-seven thousand three hundred and something odd pounds. So we're we're about two thousand six hundred pounds short from the thirty k mark. How long have you been doing it for? Um, raising money we did about six years, but we've been doing the lights for about ten years. Yeah, great. So, 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 uh, so what's your favourite lights? Like, which ones do you really like? Um, I don't think I can choose a favourite one. There's like many on there. I think they're all good. You know, it's like, it's, uh, yeah, it's uh, <laughs> yeah. I went in your house once, and, and there was also, and you got as many lights inside your front room, haven't you? Yeah, we, we, we've, we've toned down the inside a little bit now, I've got more on the outside, so, but yeah, it's, uh, it's become right, the heart of the community sort of thing, so it's really good, so yeah. yeah I, I bet the bills are fantastic amount for electricity. It's, yeah, it has had up a bit, so yeah, it is quite expensive, yeah, but uh, we'll, um, hope we'll cover that for the, um, just try and get some money for the charities, that's what we were there for. Yeah, that is the main thing, isn't it? And it's a fantastic course. Thank you very much indeed for talking to us. No, you're very welcome. Take care. Merry Christmas. Well done. Merry Christmas to you. Thank you, Paul. Well, Graham has got me in the Christmas spirit. What about you? Yes, good, yeah. Yes, fantastic. Okay, well, that's all from us. Just to say, to wish you a very happy Christmas. Christmas. Yeah, <laughs> and a happy new year. Okay, bye. Bye. Sure, it's Christmas. One. So, right, we've got all the decorations up. So what comes next? Well, it's got to be presents, hasn't it? Last week, you'll remember, I started telling you about the origins of present giving. That was another article from the English Heritage website, which I'd recorded previously. So here's the second part of that article. Traditionally, Christmas Day itself was marked with feasting, wassailing, and generally rowdy behaviour. Bands of young men would go from door to door singing cows and offering a drink from the wassail bowl in exchange for gifts. 
It was a time for adults rather than children, and Father Christmas was a character who acted as master of ceremonies for the rebels rather than handing out gifts. This all changed when the Victorians wanted to find a new way of honouring Christmas as a time for family celebrations rather than wild partying. Christmas gift-giving was part of this new wholesome Christmas focused on children and family life. Generally during the 19th century the focus on gift-giving switched from early December or New Year to Christmas so that by the 1870s the arrival of Father Christmas with his sack of presents on Christmas Eve was almost universal in England. Even today, however, children open their presents on different days in different parts of the world. In Belgium, Germany and parts of Eastern Europe, presents are unwrapped on the 6th of December, St Nicholas Day. And in Catholic countries such as Spain, Italy and Mexico, they have to wait for their gifts until the Epiphany, the 6th of January. There is also a widespread European tradition of giving gifts to the poor on St Stephen's Day, 26th of December. Boxing Day is possibly named after the alms box placed in the parish church to collect donations for the poor, or the box of gifts given to servants by their employers each year. In the 1850s, Queen Victoria writes in her diary of walking to the kennels at Windsor Castle with the children to give Christmas boxes to the Little McDonald's. Today we have the Victorians to thank for many other modern aspects of Christmas gift-giving. Queen Victoria and Prince Albert laid out all their presents for each other and the royal children on present tables in a decorated room at Windsor Castle each year. When the Queen moved to celebrating Christmas at Osborne after Prince Albert's death, the practice was continued. Christmas cards were another Victorian invention, started by Sir Henry Cole in 1843 a government official who helped to set up the post office and he was looking for ways to encourage ordinary people to use the postal service. He had 2,050 cards printed featuring a central picture of a family raising a toast to the cards recipient with scenes of charity to the poor on either side and they were sold for a shilling each. By the 1870s the greeting cards were being mass produced for the British market. Around the same time, the practice of wrapping presents in colourful patterned gift paper starts to become popular in England. This tradition came from North America, where it was popularised in the earlier 20th century. Prior to this, brown paper or coloured tissue paper had been used, and for much of the 19th century, presents were displayed unwrapped. The placing of presents on or under the Christmas tree is also inspired by the Victorians, but continues today. Gifts were initially rather modest, fruit, nuts, sweets or small handmade trinkets which were usually hung on the tree. Stockings were traditionally hung on St Nicholas Day but since the 19th century like many other Christmas traditions have moved to Christmas Eve. Although usually for children Christmas stockings could sometimes be filled for adults too. Today, giving gifts on the 25th of December is as synonymous with Christmas as a roasted dinner or a festively lit tree. Each year, millions of people flock to the high street or online retailers to tick off their Christmas lists to ensure that they have something to share with their loved ones. 
Giving gifts today means something different to everyone, but whatever the motivation, the inexplicable joy associated with giving is one of the most exciting elements of the festive season. As a tradition as old as humanity itself, giving gifts is showing no signs of slowing down. There are lots and lots of traditions associated with Christmas, and one I wondered about is the little old sixpenny piece, as it used to be for those of us that remember that far back, and how it found its way into plum pudding. Jenny Mander of the Royal Mint writes about the history behind this and other traditions which makes this season so special, and this is read by Sue. Decorating the tree, sharing mince pies and pulling crackers. It's the little traditions that make Christmas magical. And coins have always had a special place at the heart of the festivities. Wise men bearing gifts, a little extra for those who work hard all year, or a bag of chocolate currency enjoyed before breakfast on Christmas morning. Somehow it's not Christmas without a coin. The festive season is a time for giving, so it's not surprising that the connection between coins and festive traditions has a very long history. Legend has it that the custom of giving presents at Christmas began with those three wise men, or kings, whom we sing about in carol concerts and on festively lit streets to the sound of brass bands each year. The story tells how they travelled from far-off lands to bring gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh to the baby Jesus. Gold has traditionally been prized for its beauty as a metal and for its resistance to tarnishing, and in time it came to be seen as a symbol of purity. Today, coins are given to new babies to symbolise wealth for a comfortable start in life, but the original tradition started with those three wise men. As centuries passed, it became common practice to give money at Yuletide, the ancient term for Christmas. Landowners would present hard-working and loyal staff with a Christmas box, the origin of the name Boxing Day. Even today, it is customary to offer tradespeople a small sum for their services throughout the year. And it's not just people you should be slipping coins to. Whether your Christmas pudding is homemade or off the shelf, add a sprinkle of good luck to your festivities this year. Traditionally, home bakers would stir a silver sixpence into the pudding mix on the last Sunday before Advent, giving every member of the household a chance to stir it too and make a wish. Busy families who have bought their puds can still get involved by slipping a sixpence into the steaming delight before serving up an extra special slice. Tradition has it that the finder of the sixpence will enjoy wealth and good fortune in the year to come. Some families have used the same coin for as long as they can remember. The tradition of Christmas stockings also began with coins. There are countless versions of the story, but this one starts with St Nicholas, a kind and compassionate 4th century Greek saint, who was said to be left well off after his wealthy parents died when he was young. 
He took pleasure from giving gifts to those less fortunate than himself, preferably in secret. He heard about a local nobleman who had lost both his wife and his money and had moved into a peasant's cottage with his three daughters, all of marriageable age. In those days a girl needed a dowry to offer to the groom's parents, but this poor family had barely enough to eat. St Nicholas knew that the family was too proud to accept charity. On spotting that the girls had hung their stockings to dry on a chimney ledge, he decided to climb down the chimney and put a bag of silver coins into the oldest girl's stocking. On the next visit, he placed coins into the second girl's stocking, but on the third time, the grateful father hid in the room and caught St Nicholas in the act. Of course, his generosity meant that all three daughters could marry. Although he begged the nobleman to keep it a secret, the legend tells how word soon got out, and everyone started to hang up their stockings, hoping for a visit from St Nicholas. Thus started another long-held tradition that, at first sight, has nothing to do with Christmas at all. Today's festive stockings tend to be filled with small presents or stocking fillers, but even today there will often be the gift of a coin, whether real or chocolate, in the toe. In homes across the country, the tree is at the centre of festive celebrations, from when it's brought into the home and decorated to taking it down in the new year, it plays a key part in making the season special. As families across Britain and beyond get into the swing of the festive season, many may not be aware that they're following traditions handed down through centuries. The gifts, the tree, the sixpence in your pudding, the Boxing Day thank you, and the coin in the toe of your stocking. It's those moments that make things so magical. It's definitely not Christmas without a coin. Think wise men bearing gifts, a little extra for those who work hard all year, or a bag of chocolate treasure. Christmas and coins go hand in hand. So now I know why I've got a sixpence in my pudding. It's a wonderful, magical time of year, isn't it? Especially for children. But there's something we can all hopefully enjoy. To end this special end-of-year edition for Christmas, we have a seasonal poem called Bethlehem. It was written by Carol Ann Duffy and is read by Margaret. A mild dusk. The little town snaked on the edge between desert and farmland. Camel prints in the sand like broken hearts. The call and response of sheep among dry shrub. To the west, the whispering prayer of olive groves, incense of rosemary, cedar, pine, votive on purpling air. Everyone there who had to be there. The lamps lit, all Bethlehem full. Every cave stabled with beasts, jostling for hay in the fusty gloom. Every room peopled and packed from rafter to floor, barley bread in the ovens rising, and a girl's hands at an open door, her blade halving a pomegranate 
its blood on her pale palms, a voice from an alleyway chanting a psalm. The moon rose, the shepherds sprawled, shawled, a rough ring on sparse grass, passing a leather flask. From the town, a swelling human sound, cooking smells braiding the hour as lambs and fishes spat in the fires. A hundred suppers, honey, fig, olive, grape, set before stonecutter, potter, tent maker, maid, nurse, farmer, child. Young wine in the old jars, yellow and cold. The inn bulged, travellers boozed, bawled, brawled, swapping their caravan tails, money lenders biting their gold coins, painted women dancing on tables, mules brayed outside in the stables, a youth in the courtyard strummed on a harp. The sweating innkeeper shouted and served, his wife counting the heads, then making up beds on the flat roof in the vine-covered yard. Above, bright news in the sky, arrived a star. The small hours all living souls slept or half-slept, the night fires smouldering low out in the scrub the olive oil cooling in clay lamps, a goat herd snored in the straw between two goats. Silent night, a soft breeze from the desert laying a dusting of sand on the dark road, blessing the homes, a donkey's slow, deliberate hooves on the stones. Afterwards, the witnesses spoke of a singing boy, an angel walking the fields in the hour before dawn, winged in his own light, of how the shepherds fled from the sight, lambs in their arms, and some swore on their lives, on their children's lives, that they saw an olive tree turning to pure gold, that the moon stooped low to gape at the world. What certain, the time and place heard, Three crows from the cockerel, seen, the stable behind the inn. Present, animals, goat herd, shepherds, innkeeper, wife, then the small raw cry of a new life, and one wept at a miracle, another was hoping it might be so. Others ran, daft, shouting, to boast in the waking streets. Wise men swayed on camels out of the east. So that's just about the end of this week's programme, or should I even say this year's programme. So all that remains is for me to wish you a very happy and healthy Christmas and a peaceful and healthy New Year. We're now going to have a two-week break to recharge our batteries, and we will be back on Wednesday the 4th of January. But in the meantime, have a lovely Christmas, folks. That's all from me. Bye-bye.